For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This week on Viewpoints. Those small businesses in the aggregate are 50% of all jobs and 45% of GDP. It's about half the economy. One economist's theories on post-pandemic America. Then. It was a life lived much closer to the bone than the more comfortable life that you encounter in the middle class and the suburbs. Exploring the oil fields of rural North Dakota, I'm Marty Peterson. And I'm Gary Price. These stories in depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints. The thing about the Home and Auto Bundle from Progressive is that by now you've heard a lot of ads about the Home and Auto Bundle from Progressive. We don't even need the words the Home and Auto Bundle anymore to tell you that you could save big with the ring-tailed lemur from Progressive or that every hot peach cobbler comes with round-the-clock service and protection. And that's the thing about the goat with magic powers. You've heard a lot of ads about the sushi in Vancouver. See how much you could save with the Home and Auto Bundle <clears throat> with the shaman in the jungle from Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Bundle discount not available in all states or situations. For the ones finding new ways to ensure the job always gets done. For the ones wearing many hats. For the ones who are hands-on, even from far away. And the ones keeping business moving forward. We are Granger, Offering supplies and solutions for every industry. With 24-7 support and experienced staff at over 250 local branches. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. COVID-19 is now the third deadliest pandemic in history, right after the Black Death beginning in 1346 and the Spanish flu of 1918. As of late February, global counts of deaths from the virus have surpassed two and a half million. In total, there's been more than 112 million recorded cases. The U.S. alone makes up 30 million cases and more than 500,000 dead. It's been a challenging 12 months, to say the least. Americans have weathered through the unknowns of a new virus and months-long lockdowns that closed thousands of businesses and brought communities to a standstill. But with spring on the horizon and vaccinations rolling out across the country, some are seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. Yet with this comes many questions. What will post-pandemic life look like? How has the economy been affected by this instability? And will businesses bounce back? People look down at their nose at you know small and medium-sized business. You know, this is your bars, restaurants, dry cleaners, nail salons, gas stations, boutique shopping, etc. It's like, oh, you only have 20 employees or you only have 10 waiters in your restaurant. Who cares? Well, first of all, I care. And if you're the one who got laid off or the, you own the restaurant, you care. But those small businesses in the aggregate are 50% of all jobs and 45% of GDP. It's about half the economy. And they're being crushed by the lockdown. That's James Rickards, a longtime economist, lawyer, and author of The New Great Depression. 
Winners and Losers in a Post-Pandemic World. Rickard says that the Paycheck Protection Program helped businesses stay afloat and the stimulus checks aided Americans. But when it comes to the health of the U.S. economy, what's the perception versus the reality? Uh, economists like to use the R word, you know, recession, two or more consecutive quarters of declining GDP. They don't like to use the D word, which is depression, because it's more subjective. It's not as quantitative. But that's too bad because we're in a depression and you know, people need to understand what that means. Depression does not mean continuous declining growth. You can have growth in a depression, but it's depressed growth, meaning it's below trend. So if trend or potential is, you know, three, three and a half percent, and you're growing around one and a half to two percent, which we will be best case, that's depressed growth. There's an output gap there where you're leaving trillions of dollars of potential output on the table and you're not keeping up with the debt and things are getting worse. Even though you're growing a little bit, things are getting worse. Depressions can last 10 years, they can last even longer than that. And that's where we're in today. Because the term depression is subjective, some economists disagree with Rickards. Many argue that the U.S. is simply in a pandemic-induced recession, but will recover fully as millions more are vaccinated. As this unfolds, one key economic figure to watch is unemployment. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the unemployment rate as of January 2021 is 6.3%. This pales in comparison to April 2020 when it shot up to 15%. However, it is still higher than pre-pandemic America. Despite the fact that unemployment has steadily improved, Rickards argues that many Americans, working or not, are still trying to keep their heads above water. He says that many are not outright spending their stimulus checks, but instead paying off existing credit card debt that's piled up during the pandemic or are putting the money towards an emergency fund. That can be a good individual decision. I'm not against savings, but 70% of our economy is consumption. They don't know how it's going to end. It could be inflation. It could be default. It could be higher taxes. There are a number of responses, but they're all bad. And so people save more to get ready for that. With the massive spending on pandemic relief and the Paycheck Protection Program this past year, some economists are also worried about the country's increasing debt in comparison to the economy's output, referred to as the Gross Domestic Product, or GDP. If you take the total amount of debt, which now is over $25 trillion, and divide it by the economy, which is about $22 trillion, that's called the debt-to-GDP ratio. Well, up to about 90%, a 90% ratio, if you borrow a dollar and spend a dollar, you can probably get a dollar ten of growth. You get a little bang for the buck. But once you go past 90%, it goes in reverse. Now you borrow a dollar and you spend a dollar, but you only get 90 cents of growth or 80 cents of growth. In other words, you don't even get a dollar of growth. Well, that critical threshold, that through the looking glass, if you want to think of it that way, is at 90%. The United States is at 130%, 130% debt to GDP. Who else is in that category? Well, Lebanon, Greece, and Italy, the super debtors club. Although Rickard says that this level of debt has catastrophic implications, there are clashing opinions in the industry. David Wessel, a senior fellow of economic studies at the Brookings Institution, writes that it's still unclear what the impact of national debt is on the success of the economy. 
The financial health of the U.S. is a complicated machine with many moving parts. However, one common myth that can be easily debunked is that the stock market mirrors the economy. The stock market is completely detached from the real economy. I've got trading screens I look at all day. I know the stock markets are at all-time highs, and people's 401ks have come back from the lows of last March. I I get that. But that's not the real economy. First of all, most people are in index funds. And if you're in an index fund, it's going to be based on the S&P 500, typically. There are a couple others, but they're mainly S&P 500, the the fund you buy from, you know, whatever, Vanguard, Fidelity, Federated. They're key to the S&P 500. Well, it's not really the S&P 500 because there are seven stocks that dominate the index, so 40% of the market cap of the index. And they're the least affected by the pandemic. And we know what they are. It's Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, Netflix, Microsoft, and Tesla. So it's seven stocks that are taking the whole stock market higher. But that's not the real economy. Rickards adds that the stock market is not a good predictor of what's to come. And this is evident through some key moments in history. The stock market did not see the dot-com crash coming. It did not see the 2008 financial crisis coming. It did not see the 2020 pandemic and market crash coming. The stock market never sees anything coming. They pretend that they do, but they actually don't, and their track record in terms of forecasting is very bad. So, what can people do to be better prepared for potential economic downturns? Rickards points to greater investment diversification and the ability to pivot quickly if markets shift. Number one, have more than the usual amount of cash, not 100%. You know, you need to be diversified, but maybe 30% of your investment portfolio in cash. People go, well, cash has no yield. Well, that's true, but if we have deflation, which I do expect, the real value of cash goes up because your purchasing power goes up. And it also gives you, you can be nimble when you get a little more visibility. Right now, visibility is very poor because there's so much uncertainty, but that'll change over time. And as we get better visibility and you say, aha, you know, I... Here comes inflation. I need to be in gold, or the economy's coming back. The vaccines work better, so I need to be in stocks. Well, if you have cash, you can do that. You can be the person who pivots. But if you're in all these other investments, they can be hard to get out of. So maybe 30% cash, 10% gold or gold mining shares, not 100%. You know, you need to be diversified, but a 10% slice in gold will serve you very well. To find out more about this topic, links to additional resources, and our guest, James Rickards, visit viewpointsradio.org. Also check out his book, The New Great Depression, available online and in bookstores now. For more behind the scenes, search Viewpoints Radio on Twitter and Facebook. This segment was written and produced by Amira Zaveri. I'm Gary Price. Coming up, do you know what a swamper is? When Viewpoints returns. Two nationwide surveys find that discrimination is a significant barrier to care for people with Alzheimer's and dementia. Half or more of non-white Alzheimer's caregivers report they face discrimination in navigating health care for the recipient. Dr. Carl V. Hill is Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer of the Alzheimer's Association. The data suggests we have a long way to go to address lack of health equity in health care. More than 80% of non-white racial and ethnic groups say it's important for Alzheimer's care providers to understand their backgrounds and experiences. But fewer than half of Blacks and only about 60% of Hispanics and Asian Americans feel confident 
about their access to culturally competent providers. The surveys also reveal a lack of trust among blacks in research clinical trials, and half doubt that advances in Alzheimer's treatments would be shared. These findings are part of the 2021 Alzheimer's Association Facts and Figures Report. Find out more at alz.org facts. Me, 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 but also you. The Pharaoh fast-forwards his favorite foreign film, Powder Donut. <clears throat> okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Oh, man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry, I'm going to need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus, the Bulbous Walrus. The Name Your Price tool, only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose Coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Dr. Baker, an ER physician. If you're having leg pain, swelling, or redness, but haven't talked to your doctor yet, don't wait. This could be deep vein thrombosis, a blood clot which could travel to your lungs and lead to a pulmonary embolism, which could cause chest pain or discomfort or difficulty breathing and be deadly. Your symptoms could mean something serious, so don't wait. Talk to a doctor right away by phone, online, or in person. Brought to you by Bristol-Myers Squibb and Pfizer. The energy that lights our homes with the flick of a switch or fuels our cars as we drive to work seems like a given. It's automatic and always available. But when it's not, life as we know it comes to a screeching halt. Have you ever thought about what it takes to produce this energy? It's a demanding industry that never stops running. The hours are long, the work can be dangerous, and it can be a completely separated world from the typical 9-to-5 desk job. The average workday is 14 hours, and it is in any kind of weather. So in the summertime, it got up to 100 degrees, and you're wearing a dark blue fire-resistant jumpsuit, a hard hat, and, you know, big boots. In the wintertime, it got down to... The coldest day I worked in was negative 38 degrees, which is weather where you can feel the liquid in your eyeballs freezing. That's Michael Patrick Smith, a writer and the author of The Good Hand, a memoir of work, brotherhood, and transformation in an American boomtown. In June of 2013, he moved across country from Brooklyn, New York, to Williston, North Dakota, to find work in the oil fields. He had never done this type of job, but like thousands of others, was driven there by the promise of good pay. The work itself is, you know, you're swinging a sledgehammer or you're climbing up using a harness onto some rigging or you're just picking up heavy stuff and moving it around. (laughs) And there's not much room for error. So machinery gets busted up. And if you're not careful, people get hurt and people in the oil field get killed. This work was unfamiliar and opened Smith's eyes to an entirely different way of life. He grew up in rural Maryland, but had spent most of his adult life in cities. He lived in Brooklyn for about seven years, working various jobs in order to get by, until his opportunities dried up following the financial collapse in 2008. I first heard about the boomtown from my mom when I was complaining about my job. And I was talking to her on the phone and she said, well, you know, there's an oil boom in North Dakota. And so I ended up, uh, that was where I first heard about it. And then I became kind of obsessed with stories about it. At the time, the New York Times was running a lot of stuff. And there's some interesting magazine articles 
and I became just more and more obsessed about it. But I was also finding that so much of the journalism was sort of about a person who would hop into town for two nights, talk to a few people at a diner, and then leave. I'd grown up in a rural area on a somewhat dysfunctional farm in central Maryland. And so I'd grown up in the country, and then I'd lived in cities most of my life. And some another factor for me was this desire to kind of reconnect to the country and reconnect with country people and kind of like re-explore those bonds for myself. Smith packed up and moved to Williston, North Dakota. He found work with a local company there and took on the position of a swamper. Oil rigs are like the size of skyscrapers, and they basically, they sit in one place, or these are the rigs that I worked on. They sit in one place for about two and a half months until they get oil flowing, and then they need to be moved. So they're set up kind of like giant erector sets or like big Lego pieces if the pieces are the size of fire trucks. And so as a swamper, I was a crane rigger, and I worked on the back of what's called a gin truck. It was for a trucking company, and we would show up and we would pull the oil rigs apart and load them onto trucks, haul them down the road, and then put them all back together on top of a different wellhead. And uh, so my job was to swing the chains and the hooks onto these heavy pieces of equipment, try to keep everything level, try not to knock anybody's head off, and then get the things moved. Smith says that being a swamper was an extremely physically demanding job that required you to be always on top of your game. If there was one slip-up along the way, it could lead to complete catastrophe. In 2019, there were 22 workplace deaths in the oil and gas extraction industry, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor and Statistics. But even with these known risks, people from all across the country signed up for these jobs. In 2018, the traditional energy sector employed about 6.7 million Americans according to a 2019 U.S. Energy and Employment Report. In addition, thousands more migrated in from Jamaica, the Congo, and the Philippines to find work on the oil fields. North Dakota was like the Wild West. It's kind of the cliche, but it's also pretty true. I mean, I worked with guys who had been Brock riders in the rodeo, you know, Um, guys who'd been driving trucks since they were 12, 13 years old. They were shifting gears on big rigs because their fathers did it or family members did it. And it was a life lived much closer to the bone than a sort of more comfortable life that you encounter in the middle class and the suburbs. With thousands of men, most of whom were blue collar and in their 20s, flocking into the small town, it transformed overnight. Drinking, crime and prostitution flourished. It was a 180 from the modern, swanky borough of Brooklyn. All that surrounded him were sprawled-out oil fields and the same men day after day for months on end. There's something about doing really hard work that for a kind of purpose that it doesn't matter so much if you agree with the people that you're doing it with. You know, the bonds out there, I disagreed politically about all kinds of things, and all of that really falls away, I think, when people are working together And when you're in in kind of a dangerous situation, I think it's similar to the way people describe military service. In many ways, the nature of the job creates a certain sense of camaraderie. You have to be able to trust and get along with your peers because often your life depends on it. In the end, it doesn't matter where you came from, what political views you hold, or any other differences. 
What ties you together are the similarities. The differences are obvious, you know, but you also don't have to scratch too hard to find the similarities. You know, people are trying to make a good living and they're doing the best they can. And maybe you agree or disagree with their views on fracking, but the amount to which we as citizens kind of affect those decisions is sort of a whole other conversation while we affect kind of the way that we treat each other every day. For generations, these workers have supplied energy to the grids of the U.S., but in many ways have been forgotten by the masses or simply used as political pawns for Washington infighting. Smith says that it's critical to take a step back from the negativity. I think one thing that I am able to offer because I was coming from Brooklyn is that I've got my feet in both urban and rural, both progressive and conservative America. And I have real connections with people on all these political divides. And I feel like, you know, my hope is that everybody can see themselves a little bit in this story and kind of agree to disagree where we disagree and then hopefully find kindness more than anything else. Today, Williston, North Dakota, is no longer the oil boom town that it was back in 2013. Smith says that soon after he left in the spring of 2014, the town went bust as oil prices plummeted and men migrated out in search of new work. This is the harsh reality of the traditional energy industry. It can be a short-lived boom, forcing people to uproot their lives as opportunities wax and wane. It's a tough sector to work in, but it's an essential service that hundreds of millions rely on every day. To find out more about this topic and our guest, Michael Patrick Smith, visit viewpointsradio.org. Also, check out his book, The Good Hand, a memoir of work, brotherhood, and transformation in an American boomtown, available online and in bookstores now. For more behind the scenes, search Viewpoints Radio on Twitter and Facebook. This segment was written and produced by Amira Zaveri, studio production by Jason Dickey. I'm Marty Peterson. Viewpoints returns in just a moment. Did you know one in four small businesses will close due to cash flow difficulties or lack of access to capital? But they don't have to. According to Lauren Schifrin of Revolution Capital, the country's leading provider of factoring and cash flow financing, there's a safe and easy way to access your capital immediately without hurting your bottom line. It's called factoring. We buy your invoices and pay you same day. That provides you with the immediate liquidity and access to the capital you need to grow your business. Because now more than ever, companies should have a finance partner that's on their side. Revolution Capital provides flexible funding options to small to medium-sized businesses that would like immediate access to capital. And they respect your business relationships to help you succeed and grow. Find out more at RevInc.com. That's R-E-V-I-N-C dot com. Welcome to Culture Crash, where we examine what's new and old in entertainment. The streaming era has given us plenty, with unlimited airtime, bigger budgets, and interest at an all-time high. Streamers like Netflix and HBO Max have been able to provide us with bingeable series like Stranger Things, incredible original films like Roma, 
and a plethora of documentary series like The Jinx or Making a Murderer. Now, I love documentaries. Delving deep into a true story, exploring previously unknown aspects of the human experience and historical fact is endlessly fascinating, so the documentary boom has been a blessing. One of my favorite films of the last decade was Minding the Gap, a documentary that streams on Hulu. And I've binge-watched Unsolved Mysteries and Wild Wild Country with so many others. But I'd be lying if I said it has all been smooth sailing. The appetite for documentaries seems to be so high that some of the quality control may have verged a bit off course. For example, while true crime is interesting and can do wonders for writing injustices, it can also become voyeuristic and exploitative. With this increased demand for content, Empathy can sometimes hit the back burner. Several families with relatives killed by notorious serial killer Peter Sutcliffe issued their outrage at the Netflix documentary series detailing Sutcliffe's crimes, being renamed from Once Upon a Time in Yorkshire to The Ripper, a title they felt sensationalized and glorified his crimes. And that's not an isolated incident. Several documentaries in the past few years have upset victims and their families with insensitive language or sensationalism. These stories are inherently upsetting, but one of the first rules of journalism and good documentary making is to do no harm. And lately, it feels like documentarians have forgotten their mission for ratings doesn't have to supersede their empathy. Another issue that has seemingly grown with these documentaries is that their popularity has meant they can sometimes feel dragged out. Instead of giving an overview of a topic in 90 or 120 minutes, more and more series seem to be stretching stories to fill hours and hours of time. HBO's series The Vow, about the Nexium cult, received a lot of complaints for stretching the story out too long with nine episodes. I experienced a similar feeling watching Netflix's crime scene The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel, which felt like a story worth exploring that was then dragged out too long and stuffed with way too many internet sleuths making wild assumptions and reckless accusations instead of sticking to the facts of the case. So, Yes, the increasing interest in documentaries has been a goldmine in interesting storytelling. But I do hope the industry can take a breath, slow down, and remember that brevity and empathy can go a long way in telling a good story. I'm Evan Rook. I'm one of thousands of women with metastatic breast cancer, or MBC. Which is breast cancer that has spread to other parts of the body. I'm living in the moment and taking Ibrantz, Pablocyclib. Ibrantz 125 milligram tablets with an aromatase inhibitor is for postmenopausal women or for men with HR positive HER2 negative MBC as the first hormonal-based therapy. Be in your moment. Ask your doctor about Ibrantz and visit Ibrantz.com. Patients taking Ibrantz can develop low white blood cell counts, which may cause serious infections that can lead to death. 
Ibrance may cause severe inflammation of the lungs that can lead to death. Tell your doctor right away if you have new or worsening symptoms, including trouble breathing, shortness of breath, cough, or chest pain. Before taking Ibrance, tell your doctor if you have fever, chills, or other signs of infection, liver or kidney problems, are pregnant, breastfeeding, or plan to become pregnant. Common side effects include low red blood cell and low platelet counts, infections, tiredness, nausea, sore mouth, abnormalities in liver blood tests, diarrhea, hair thinning or loss, vomiting, rash, and loss of appetite. And that's Viewpoints for this week. Viewpoints is a production of MediaTracks Communications. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to learn more about upcoming shows. And find a library of past programs on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Plus, you'll always find previous segments and more information about our guests at viewpointsradio.org. Join us again next week for another edition of Viewpoints. Viewpoints.